These people died. They were murdered, slaughtered because they chose to have their say. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, oh, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody to boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. were very, very sleepy. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the pain. crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Dr. Kerry Summerscales is a passionate medical professional and a veteran of the Australian Defence Force. Kerry shared with Sharon Maskeldare a range of stories from her incredible 28-year career. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kerry Summerscales, who served in the Australian Defence Force for 28 years and had five deployments to Bougainville, Timor, the Solomon Islands and on maritime operations. Today, she's in the process of transitioning to permanent part-time service and she's married to Kev, who's a former British Air Force pilot. Kerry, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you very much, Sharon. I'm really happy to be here. So tell us where your journey began. How come you came to join the Australian Defence Force and when did that happen? I was quite a naive and I suppose idealistic uh, teenager and still am the idealistic and naive thing in times. But I, um, I was actually in Amnesty International which I know sounds so incongruent to being in the army. However, I believed that I knew what happened overseas and um, I never ever wanted it to happen here. And I felt that we should really ensure that it never happens here and that we should defend those who can't fend for themselves. And of course, naively, that that was my reason for joining the army. And I I told them at recruiting, I'm sure they laughed at me. But anyway, that was the reason I joined. So it was an idealistic belief that uh, we should fend those who can't fend for themselves. So for you, very much human rights, humanitarian work was at the core of your motivation of wanting to join up. Almost definitely. I wanted to defend those who can't fend for themselves and and be part of an organisation that was capable of doing that. So tell us how old you were at that time and what kind of a young woman were you? I was 18. (laughs) So very young and idealistic. In keeping with that, I suppose, I was studying social work, which everyone at social work, when I said I wanted to join the army, were horrified. You know, and when I did join the army, everyone was horrified that I'd done social work in Amnesty International. So they seem so incongruent, but I see them as very similar, actually. So I was a very idealistic, young, passionate, you know, want to change the world sort of woman. Dare I say, you do come across as very passionate also today. I mean, that's very much part of your character. Yeah, I don't think that bit's changed. Tell us a bit about your family then. Did you have military people in your family? God, no. Um, My mum, although I did find out some years later after my grandmother died that she actually served in World War II for a little while um, or sort of, you know, in the women's sort of thing. But no, I was the first one to do it and I was rather, (laughs) I think both my parents were rather somewhat horrified by that. I did reserves for nine months beforehand, but I'd been in a couple of months in the reserves and I said to mum, I've joined the army. She goes, I know you're in the reserves. No, 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 I've joined the regular army, the real army. And she goes, well, you can't. I said, well, I did. She goes, but you can't. Well, I just did. No, you can't. I said, Mum, you told me to be independent. I've left uni. I'm being independent. She goes, not that bloody independent. (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) 
I mean, she supported me, but yeah, she was a little horrified that I'd done that. And my dad, I went around to dad's place, you know, and I said, oh, I need a naturalization number because they're both English. And he said, why? I said, I'm joining the army. And he too was like, well, what are you doing that for? And I tried to do everything to sort of alleviate his concerns. You know, what if we go to war? Well, we're not at the moment. You can't bloody join the army and we're not at the moment. So, <laughs> but they're both extremely happy I did. So they obviously came round to the idea. Bit of reticence there at the beginning, but then obviously the idea must have grown on them as you became more and more committed to what you wanted to achieve. Yes, and once they saw me leave Kapuka and then go through my you know, medics training and especially when I then said I was going to study part-time, everything like that, yeah, they, they realised it. it was good for me. So take us back then to those days at Kapuka before you joined the Royal Australian Army Medical Corps. What was the training like? Well, back in 1990, I suppose it was a bit different to what it is now. And it, it was very confronting, actually. That first night, you know, there was 50 women in this uh, barracks block. There were so many of us. There's normally four to a room, but some of us had five or six because they had bunk beds. And I remember thinking there that first night, oh, my God, what have I done? Because here's me, five foot nothing. These women were Amazonian, <laughs> you know. <laughs> holy shit, what am I doing? <laughs> but no, it was it was interesting. And certainly the training, I was, amazingly enough, I'm still in trouble for it all the time, but I was always in trouble for laughing. I know that shocks you. But um, I actually bumped into a guy who knew me from my medics course just recently on Friday night. And he said, the thing I remember the most about her is she was always smiling. Nothing I did ever stopped her laughing or smiling. No one could stop that. So yeah, I was always in trouble for mucking around or not mucking around just laughing or wherever why is it summer scales wherever the noise is you're there i don't know corporal (laughs) so it was hard but fun so you always had a smile on your face but what was the reality like what was the reality of that training as a young teenager with the 50 women at kapuka it was hard it was really hard they yelled at you all the time which was to be expected but um I don't think you can prepare for that. And it was all doing stuff we'd never done before. I'd never fired a weapon. You know, what would I know about? I lived in the city. What would I know about firearms? And the, <laughs> the SLR is 113 centimetres long. I'm only 153 carrying this thing. <laughs> it was it was heavy and it was long. It was awkward. If I did the drill properly, the foresight would hit me in the, the underarm and I couldn't reach the pistol grip properly, but you adapted. <laughs> but it, I mean, it was certainly a lot different too. The army was a lot different back then too in, in its um, approach. And you've got to remember a lot of the people who were training or those who'd been trained have been trained by ex-Vietnam veterans. So it was probably a lot harsher and, and rightly so. These people had come from a pretty awful experience. So, hmm. And you got through the training and then you joined medical corps. So how did that come about? Well, when I joined, you joined the army and they told you what you were going to do. So you did um, your aptitude test at Kapuka. And um, depending on what sex you are, you either got a green guide or a gold guide. And uh, women at the time only had 16 jobs they were allowed to do. Yeah, so it was a bit different nowadays. We had done the Morse code testing. They definitely said SIGS was not for me. I think I was better at talking than listening. We got given uh, the things that we could do, that we had the aptitude to do. So I chose medics. I And... I do remember thinking, changed my mind at the last moment, said, oh, I'll go computer information systems. Now, anyone who knows me would laugh at that because I'm useless at computers. But yeah, I was assigned medical corps and I've done multiple jobs with the medical corps, but I've always been medical corps and I loved the corps. What was your first job then in medical corps and, and what did the training involve to prepare you for that role? Well, I was a 031 medical assistant. Off we went to Portsea and it, it was it was a long course, nowhere near as long, what, as, long as it is now. But we did, um, I think it was... We did four months and then two months. So you did four months theory and then you went and did two months on-job training at either Sydney or Brisbane, depending which hospital you got assigned. You did the basic nursing type things and also a little bit of field type training and, you know, the really sort of basics really now that I look back on it. And then in the on-job training, you just got thrown in the wards or thrown in the different departments and off you trundled. But um, you were always sort of well supported. I loved the idea of being a medic and what it stood for. 
And of course, a few years prior, I would have never been able to be medical corps, but it had to be nursing corps because I'm female. Interesting. So you really were entering the medical corps at a time of change. Yes, there'd been a recent, um, over the, I suppose the two years prior, there'd been a whole amount of change and we were actually a pilot course as well. So we were the fifth of 90 AMC, so it was a new sort of course trial. But no, it, was, it was an interesting course. We finished our theory just before in December, so we then hung around for a little while before we went on to our job training and um, I got Sydney. So, And you've mentioned a couple of times the significance of being female and joining the army at that time. What was it like being a woman in the Australian Army back 28 years ago? That was a bit different. I suppose it was like any organisation of more than 20 people that had mainly blokes, you know. I don't like the when people say, oh, it's misogynistic or this sort of stuff. I don't like those sort of terminology. It was The world was like that. And people say, oh, it was sexist and there was sexual harassment. Well, my T-shirt from the last day of school, so high school, said, see you later, Titanic tits. So I don't think it's the army that was sexist. I think society just accepted that as a whole, whereas we don't now. But certainly joining, we had all female platoons, so we didn't have mixed platoons. That was a bit different to, to what it is now. Part of me still feels women socialise each other a lot quicker when there's no boys around to be distracting. There were certainly some who had the old thing, oh, women shouldn't be in the army. You know what? Maybe we shouldn't have, but we are, so suck it up. It was very much my attitude. Yeah, I remember one saying to me once, I'd almost dropped my weapon, and he said, oh, you're living proof women shouldn't be in the army, recruit. So when I went trundled back to my platoon and I told the female corporal that, yeah, that didn't go down well, so... <laughs> It's like anything, it changes. Most organisations that were mainly blokes probably had similar experiences, but it's certainly um, none of it made me cry or made me want to get out or made me think, oh, my God, I've made the wrong decision. If anything, it made me think, you know, well, bug you, watch me. The best way to ever get me to do anything was say, you can't do that, watch me. And within a few years of joining, the opportunity came up for you to deploy. So so tell us how that came about. Well, after I'd... um, so after a couple of postings, I, I decided I want to do pathology. So I did the pathology technicians course. And then um, as part of our subject courses, I suppose, well, it is part of our subject courses for promotion within pathology, you had to do your associate degree. By this stage, I'd already done part of my degree, part-time correspondence. So that was good. I, I got some credits and then I took the credits back to my degree. So my first posting after that was uh, Labyrinth Barracks Med Centre. And they needed someone to support combined health element in, on Opelisi in Bougainville. And I got asked and I said, yes, please. <laughs> so it was great. I went over there for four months. So take us back to that time. This was back in 1999. What was happening in Bougainville that, that meant that the Australian Defence Force had a presence there? There'd been a few things and there'd certainly been initially there was the Truce Monitoring Group and that's where that was led by the New Zealanders because there'd been some animosity with Australia, mainly because we supported the PNG Defence Force and so the locals were quite... Um, reticent of Australia being involved and also the mine there was run by an Australian company so they were really quite reticent to have Australians there initially. So the truce monitoring group which was the initial one was led by the New Zealanders. Then it expanded and became peace monitoring group and there was Australians, New Zealanders, Nevans and Fijians and we all worked together. There was also DFAT so it wasn't just army and there was a small maritime component but so it wasn't just us we all worked really really well together and we we're part of the combined health element so it wasn't you know a medical unit that all deployed we all came from all over the place and worked together and it, it was great I still say although it's you know there's it's not active service or those sexy things that go with that it was probably the best deployment I've ever had we made a massive difference I saw it with the locals they really loved us and certainly the, the health element and we made a difference and it was brilliant 
So for you as a still a young woman from Australia arriving in Bougainville, what were your first impressions when you arrived there to deploy? I remember getting off the plane and thinking, holy crap. <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful. The, the scenery was stunning. It's, this jungle just took over everything. It used to be this really big holiday island. They used to tell us there's a resort there that was $1,000 a night that was off this small little island. And there was at Kieta, there was another one that was booked 100% out 100% of the year. You would ring up and say, when can I come over? You know, so the, this place was stunning. And the people, so they're one of the darkest races on earth. I remember as we're going up one of the hills, just seeing this guy standing in this jungle area and he was built like the proverbial man. This man was solid. Oh, good God. (laughs) You know, and then he smiled and he had these brilliant white teeth just smiling at me. I was like, oh, hello, (laughs) maybe. It was daunting at first, but it was also welcoming, especially being female. They have a different society. So all the politics is done by the men. So like many societies, I mean, Australia has more men in their politics than we do women. However, the land goes through the women, so it's quite matriarchal in that way. Yes, the men do the politics, but they do what their women told them to do it, you know, the night before (laughs) in a lot of ways. So, and they really, really um, took serious the concept of International Women's Day and things like that. So we would get involved in that so we could be part of the community and make change and safety that way. What was your day-to-day role there then? What were you engaged in as you got up in the morning and had your day on operations in Bougainville? It was good. So we lived under this metal shack, if you like, that was huge. And it was the old copper processing plant. So we're on cement under a big metal shed. So we were dry, so we were happy with that. And um, we were in tents under that. And um, combined health element was at the end of it as well. You'd get up. So my morning routine was pathology. So my morning routine would be I'd get up and I'd calibrate or quality control on my analyzers. I was definitely suited to pathology in that I'm very meticulous on some things and it's some may call it OCD, some may call it meticulous. It depends on your point of view, I guess. So I would do all the the stuff for the analyzers and record everything. And then you just, I would wait for samples to come through, but we're in a little tent just off the recess bay. So much so if I was speaking at this volume, I could talk to the people in the recess and I was at the front of the theater tent. So it was a lot of cross training as well. So they also had me as I did a little bit of the clerical stuff, which was good. It kept me entertained and kept me out of trouble because yeah board carries a bad carry so but yeah we, we would wait for patients we would also do a, a run into town three days a week to the Arrow health clinic and that's a loose term really so there was no doctor there at the, the first time I was there at all but there was a brilliant healthcare worker and he was from the island so yeah he's no, not a doctor he's not a qualified nurse by our standards but he knows he's got a lot of information and a lot of skill so we would go down there and you know see some of the patients and if they needed theatre we would bring them back to us I sometimes assisted in theatre. We quite often, we had a lot, um, probably my main memories for Bougainville, we had a lot of obstructed labours. So women would go into labour in their village, they'd stay there for a day or two, become obstructed, and then they'd walk for a day or two. And so by the time they got to us, you know, the baby was really quite distressed and or already passed. So we would have to assist with that, obviously. So the sad thing is probably that um, I remember the nine dead babies, but I can't I know that we had some live ones because I got a photo, but I don't necessarily remember them because, yeah, those dead babies was, re- was really quite confronting. I know some of them, I would prepare them before we presented to the parents. You know, and I mean, this sounds so stupid, but um, I'd talk to them and say, oh, it's all right, mate, better luck next time. We'll see you next time, hey? But the parents just, um, I suppose it was part of their, their life. They'd lived this, we was, you know, a month ago. You know, I'm in Australia where this just didn't happen. If people don't go into obstructive labour and walk for two days in Australia. Yeah, it was a little confronting, but they just sort of took it in their stride. I remember one of the gentlemen, he put his hands on this, on his son, his dead son, and he said, um, he said, oh, it's all good now. 
no, he still passed away. And I'm thinking, how do I say that in talk Tyson? You know, <laughs> he said, no, you don't understand. My son died early so that I can live a long life. I thought, oh, God, I've really got to go cry. So <laughs> did spend a lot of the time crying. And there was also, um, we would just wait for, I suppose, emergencies, both within amongst our people and the locals, because we did treat the locals. So I remember there was a motor vehicle accident and a, everyone... <laughs> All the guys would sit in the back of the ute, you know, in the tray, as you'd expect. Of course, this thing, the gearbox dropped out or something. But anyway, they ended up rolling back down the hill, which is all right for all the ones on the side. But it's the one in the middle who didn't get out in time. And so he had a significant brain injury and he passed away, unfortunately. The, the grieving process is different in different cultures as well. So the mum was there just wailing. And I remember thinking as, as much as I thought it was terrible for me to think this. After about an hour, I looked at my OC. I said, oh, please, we should stop, you know. And, and then I felt really guilty that I thought, you know, this woman's making me feel uncomfortable. I'm not the one who's just lost a kid. So there, there was a lot of that. We had a lot of confronting things. Um, we had someone come in with, he'd chopped his fingers, parts of his fingers off because he was feeding the pig um, and he was chopping the coconut and he was, you know, he, he chopped the coconut and yeah, he's chopped his fingers with the machete and oops, so the pig ate it so we couldn't rightly reattach. Um, <laughs> it's like whoopsies. And then a few days later we had someone come in being in, sort of inter-clan rivalry, his wrist had been chopped off. Our concern was this guy was a village chief. So they have payback system there. So if if you chop my wrist off, then I'll, at the wrist I'll just chop yours off so that we're, we're equal payback. We thought, oh, God, but he's a, he's a village chief. The payback for this is going to be significant. And then we heard through the, the grapevine that, oh, no, no, two pigs and about five chickens covered it. Same as if you run over a chicken there, you don't pay for just the chicken. You've got to pay for all the chickens, 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 you know. So um, it, it, it was a different society. But who's to say who's wrong? You know, I don't know whether at first I found that the payback system a little confronting until we had a woman come in who, because most have been exposed to malaria, her husband had punched her and ruptured her spleen because she'd had malaria. And um, the dad was with her and he said, oh, yeah, he's gone into hiding in the hills because we will kill him. You know, and I remember thinking, oh, gosh, that's harsh. And then, I th you know, you come back to Australia at times and you hear some of the punishments serious criminals get here. You know, when someone's on their 23rd rape, really, why are they on the street? So I don't know who's right. So given the environment that you were living and working there, as you just described, for you personally, did you always feel safe? I mean, it sounds like there was some sense of threat that was omnipresent during your deployment. There was, I suppose, and certainly we weren't armed. So I suppose that was the biggest thing. We didn't have a way of defending ourselves. We did have a group of people who would do training, but yeah, we weren't armed. Being female, the way they ensured that we had protection was if I wanted to go off base, so, you know, running or because they had the Lola Ho Runners Club and things like that, we had to do it. We had to have three males with us, at least three three males. After there had been an incident, which was mild, they said you have to have five males with you. So it was, I want to go for a really very slow, pathetically slow run. Who can I convince to come with me? So I just ran up and down the wharf. <laughs> I suppose the threats for us being combined health element were different. Mine were clinical threats. So I played with TB sputum without a, without the appropriate safety equipment that we would have in Australia. I don't know if they've, there was no HIV on the island. I knew that. There was a lot of hep B, which we'd been vaccinated against, so that's okay. But we didn't know about hep C. So I suppose it was more that biological threat for us. As far as physical threat, there'd been a few instances, but nothing drastic. Not by the time we were there anyway in 99. And then a couple of years later, you were back in Bougainville. So tell us how that came about, that you deployed once and then so soon you were back again. 
Yes, so it was the very next year. One of the girls who was doing pathology had got there and then um, at about day 32, she said that she had to come home because her marriage was under threat. And yeah, they thought, oh gosh, who are we going to get to come over? It needs to be someone who knows the area because we've got to do all this pre-deployment training and, and everything. And they asked me and so I went within 36 hours. But I loved it. I really enjoyed Bougainville. I, I thought it, we were making a difference and it was something that, that was I felt really strongly about. So I definitely went. And then when you returned back from Bougainville, just within a matter of months, you were off again, this time to East Timor. So how did that come about? When I got back from Bougainville, it was mid-year and then I got posted to 3 Basby as it was transitioned to 3 Sisby. Yeah, it was our turn to go over to East Timor. So we supported Tuaria, which was good. It was interesting and I certainly I learnt a lot more military things there, I, I imagine, because I was, I was embedded within an infantry battalion because I was in Balabo rather than down Dili or, or Batagade where most of my people from 3 Sisby were. Once again, it's the I suppose being female, obviously the women are going to talk to me. It was the women and the children that really brought it home to me again, how lucky we are and, and why we're there. And I suppose it's certainly something, you go around some of the, the areas and you see black crosses, it means someone died through violence there. So people bleat about, oh, it's ridiculous that we have to vote in Australia. You know, how dare they tell us what to do? I hate to burst your bubble. These people died. They were murdered, slaughtered because they chose to have their say. We should never, ever, ever complain about voting. It's our right and we should we should take it seriously. So just remind our listeners of what the situation was in Timor at that time when you arrived, because I mean you've given us a bit of an indication there of the kind of tensions, but what was the reality as you understood it? I was in Bougainville when the first push hit, so I was there a year later. What had initially happened was the East Timorese wanted independence from Indonesia. So they were given the opportunity to vote and the vote wasn't for independence, it was for semi-autonomy and it came in the 90s, no. So <laughs> that's not what they wanted. Yes, yeah, some people went through and just slaughtered them. So certainly when the first group arrived, who were ironically to our AR, so the people I was with, so I was there for their second deployment, yeah, buildings were still smoking and things like that when they arrived and got off the plane. So, and it's really quite difficult, you know, because you don't know who's whom and, you know, what people's allegiances are or anything like that. And some people, I suppose, in East Timor did want to remain part of Indonesia, but the vast majority didn't. And there was certainly a political arm and a militia arm. I suppose, you know, someone's freedom fighter is another person's, you know, <laughs> terrorist. Depends which side you're sitting on really, isn't it? Yeah, it was interesting, but certainly... When we were there, things had settled a little bit. There certainly weren't as much, wasn't as much violence. There was still some, but it wasn't constant. It was more sporadic. And certainly I wasn't seen to, you know, seeing it. I didn't go out and on patrol or anything like that. I, I certainly did pickets up on the, in the gun tower. But yeah, I wasn't um, out patrolling or anything like that. I was once again pathology. So I suppose once again, my biggest threat was biological and fecal matter. <laughs> So looking back on that deployment to Timor, what really is the most memorable time for you from that period? There's a lot of memorable, funny things that happened. Certainly I am, um, any defence person will know this one, I'd um, put my weapon up where we were and then I went to go to bed and my weapon wasn't there. So I thought, oh, good God. So I was a corporal thinking, oh, holy crap. And then so I snuck around to transport. My weapon here. Is my weapon here? No. Nah. Jesus. So I snuck around way over the other side of the compound to SIGs, you know, and did the same. Nah. Come back and I'm thinking, oh, after about an hour I end up saying to the warrant officer, I said, sir, I'm buggered. I don't know where my weapon is. It's not up there. He said, well, Elliot's is there. I said, well, that's nice, sir, but mine's not. He goes, Elliot's gone to bed. Bastard. I shall return. So I took his weapon to him, but that hour I was terrified. But probably the most memorable and poignant time in Timor, there's a thing called the Kissing House um, in Timor. So it was just on the corner and it was where young women were taken and they were forced to put lipstick on and kiss the wall and they were either assaulted or shot. 
So, um, and you could still see some of the stains on the wall. And off to the, the side, there's a, there was a room and it had a beautiful curtain and I pulled back that curtain to have a look. And in there was a, it was like a raised altar um, and it had four coffins and on the wall behind it, it had names and in the middle it had a big cross and that cross came all the way down the wall and through the middle of this altar. But what hit me more than anything else, and they had all these beautiful bougainvillea flowers and everything, so it's been clearly maintained and well looked after and clearly the, the locals mourn. But what got me was the size of these coffins. I'm five foot nothing and I barely would have fitted in them. They were not adults, they were children. And it was, uh, you probably got a theme, you know, like I'm big on protecting the children and I don't care, adults beat the crap out of each other for all I care. But yeah, the children and, and a lot of time the women, they don't have a choice. So that was probably quite confronting. And then I realised when I got home some years later, watched the movie Balibo. Foolishly, I watched it at about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night on my own. And I remember thinking, I'll find out where we were, like, you know, where, or where those guys were staying. Uh, you know, that'd be interesting because there's only so few houses. I don't know where they were. Yeah, excellent. They were where we were staying. So that was a real sort of whoa <laughs> moment as well. Timor, the people are beautiful. The girls, you know, oh, Miss Carrie, Miss Carrie, as they'd go past, which some of the guys, we'd gone down to a Christmas presentation and they've gone, oh, Miss Carrie, Miss Carrie, because they could recognise my voice. And one of the guys said, did they just call you Miss Scary? No. Okay, maybe. <laughs> so there was a lot of, like anything, there was a lot of fun. We made it what it was. A lot of really good friendships made, but also once again made you realise how lucky we were here. And then again, just within months, you're off to the Solomon Islands. So that must have been another very instructive and informative experience for you. Solomon Islands, yeah. So I got back from East Timor and then I got posted again. There was a trend here. So I got posted down to the hospital in Brisbane and it was July. Yeah, we heard that there was something going on and yeah, and all of a sudden we got to, oh, we're going tomorrow. Excellent. But the funny thing was my mum was up, thank God, because I was single, so who was going to look after my cat? <laughs> Sounds so pathetic, but who was going to look after the cat? But mum had come up and for holidays and avoiding Adelaide's winter. She'd come into work for some reason and I said, oh, mum, we've just got to go to a meeting about when we're possibly going overseas. And she goes, okay. And so I've come back. And so I was a sergeant by this stage and my boss had walked through first, but I didn't realise that. So I've walked into the tea room where mum was sitting and she said, tomorrow, you're going tomorrow? How the hell do you know that? Like, your ESP is not that good. <laughs> I realised my boss had said something as, as he walked through. He goes, oh, well, we're off tomorrow. And mum freaked out. <laughs> but we were the first push. So we, um, so yeah, we did go the next day up to Townsville for some pre-deployment training. And off we trundled. Mum stayed and looked after the cat. <laughs> We arrived and we assumed we were HMAS Manura was going to take us all over there and we would get off at the other end and bye, lovely, thank you. Thank you for the vomit because I definitely, most of us were so sick on the way over. Sea State 4 and the Coral Sea, which for the Navy is nothing but for us land lovers, that was awful. It was terrible. So um, we'd been there and we thought, why aren't we getting off? Why aren't we getting off? And then eventually... Um, you know, one of the people from Canberra actually came to speak to us and said, oh, yes, Manura's um, staying. There will be the, the hospital ship, plus that wasn't our main role, plus all the resupply for the weather coast and everything like that, at <laughs> which point we're all, no. And all the Navy are like, no, we want to go home, you know, because they were on their way back from somewhere else. So there was a lot, there was a bit of tension, I suppose, um, at that point in time, which, which is understandable in some ways, that many people in such a confined space, hence why I joined the Army. We walk long ways. They did get me off the ship at one point because I think I was going a bit mad. So I got off as a basic medic, which I hadn't been for a long time by that stage. I was pathology. So here I am as this sergeant basic medic with my private advanced medic and off we trundle. And we went round to um, 
Bamanana Kira, which is on the weather coast. So with a, a section of infantry. And it was interesting. Initially, they wouldn't come see us until I eventually said to them, guys, I'm not sending you back to that goddamn ship. I understand. We're all army. I will keep you here as long as I can, unless there's something serious that you need to go back for. Even if it's just you need a, a bag of fluid, I will do it here. Then they all started to come see us. <laughs> but I'd actually severely injured my um, knee. So I probably wasn't in the best place. Also, I, I would be hypocritical of me to send them back after that now. I was washing my cams one day. And this girl came up, you know, oh, morning, true, morning, you know, because I could speak Tuck Pissin from Bougainville. This pillar lady in this pillar village, she had Pickaninny belong her, which means, you know, the lady in the nearest village has just had a baby. I'm like, oh, wow, Pickaninny man or Pickaninny Mary. So I'm asking boy or girl, oh, Pickaninny Mary, oh, wonderful, oh, name belong Pickaninny Mary, you know, and doing all this chit chat, chit chat, chit chat. And eventually she says to me, yes, basket belong Pickaninny still inside. So I've gone, the basket, the baby comes in and still is, oh my God, that's a retained placenta. At this stage, I was pathology. The only obstetrics form of training I'd ever had was in Bougainville. We, we would do every day, one of the, when you ask the routine, one of the things I forgot to say was every day we had an education session in the afternoon. So sometimes I gave it as pathology. So I did the whole malaria cycle, spoke of dengue, all these sorts of things because everyone was valued and we would have visiting specialists. So I had three lessons on obstetrics <laughs> of an hour each in Bougainville. And that was all the information we had. So I came flying back to, you know, the other medic. Oh my God, do you do obstetrics on your advanced medics course? He goes, why would we do that, Sarge? I don't know, mate, but Jesus. So, <laughs> so we asked permission. We got permission to go with them. It was funny because I said, oh, how, how far, you know, how far is your village? So, how far village belong you? Oh, no far, no far. I thought, yeah, I know your definitions are not far. You know, how many moons belong this village? She looked at me really funny because it was only about half an hour away. But yeah, certainly in Bougainville. Oh, no far, three moons later. So three nights later, you're still walking. <laughs> yeah, we got there and yeah, sure enough, went into this little birthing hut, I suppose. Extremely dark, especially when you've just come from outside. I remember kneeling down and I said to, you know, the other medic, I said, oh gosh, I think I've just knelt in amniotic fluid. Nope, 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 that's blood. Yep, yep, excellent. And then, of course, the baby was out, but the, the placenta was still stuck. And um, I knew that I couldn't reef it, otherwise you can get massive bleeding. So I did, you know, this J motion and rubbed the fundus of her abdomen. And it was funny, the other medic said to me, oh, Sarge, I'm having trouble getting the, the cannula in. I said, do you want to swap ends, mate? No, I'll get the needle in. Excellent. Um, so <laughs> anyway, we got the placenta out and it didn't cause a massive postpartum hemorrhage at the time. We brought it back to where we were. And, yeah, by this stage she was starting to bleed which ironically I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I knew she was bleeding, but now being a doctor, I now know how severe that situation was. Of course, as a medic, a basic medic or anyone first aid, how do you stop bleeding? You apply pressure. How do you apply pressure to a hole? So yeah, you, you stuff it. So, um, which realistically is the correct thing to do. It's just, we obviously have different tools to do that here. And if you're in obstetric ward, I said to him, get on the radio and ask for Amy support. He's come back and he said, oh, Sarge, they said they're thinking about it. I won't tell you what my exact words were, but they weren't very pleasant. But they went along the lines of um, you get on their effing radio and you effing will tell them to get here. They gave support. They will finish it. Get Amy here now. He comes back. Oh, Sarge, they're, um, they'll let us know. You get back on that effing radio, you effing will tell them. If they don't effing will come here now, <laughs> they have a choice. Get a doctor here or they can shove their hand up her vagina. Their choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> poor bugger. He comes back and he says, Sarge, they're coming. Excellent. <laughs> 
And ironically, the doctor who arrived was my commanding officer from 2HSB. So so my unit, he was there as the AME doctor. And he is one of the best commanding officers I've ever had, as well as one of the best doctors I know. One of the most amazing, beautiful, wonderful gentlemen I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So AME support, you're talking about aeromedical evacuation. So no doubt then with that particular case, you made an enormous difference. You probably saved that woman's life. Yeah, I suppose we did. I mean, the baby was fine. The baby was out. The baby was good. Yes, yes, we did. And it was interesting to know when when she got back to Honiara, we'd now set up, we were bringing our things back onto land now. And as pathology, we have Red Cross blood, but obviously we don't send it back to Australia for it to be disposed of. So certainly in Bougainville, I used to ring the hospital in Booker and say, can you dispose of blood that's about to expire, please? And they had plenty of ways of doing that. In Bougainville, they had in Booker, the top island, they would have two blood banks, one that was hep B positive and one that was hep B negative. So if someone was dying and their cross match was with a hep B positive blood, then guess what? So yeah, they, they were quite pleased to dispose of blood for me. And we did the same in Solomon Islands because they would have the capacity to dispose of it. We didn't. How they just chose to dispose of it is their choice. But I know that she, she received quite a few units of our blood, which was wonderful. So even though you were primarily based out on the ship, you did manage to get on shore. And in what other ways then did you have that contact with the local people during that deployment and that sense that you were really there to help the security situation? There were certainly other people doing different roles. Our main role was to support the AFP who were doing a lot of the weapons collection and I suppose the policing and, you know, getting the people who were considered the rebels and troublemakers or what other words we choose to use. Once the situation was a lot safer and we could walk around town, um, we would take opportunity to, to go into town, not to do a great deal really, but just to be seen in a lot of the ways. Um, I remember thinking one night there was hardly any lights and then by the time we'd got to land, which was a couple of months later, there was just lights everywhere. And it was wonderful to see, you know, you know that people are now working again and their, their businesses are running and their homes are running. They've got electricity again and as opposed to Bougainville where they still didn't have that. So, th- so that was great. And Bougainville and Solomon Islands are so culturally very similar. Girlfriend of mine from, um, so the radiographer, we were walking in town and we were bleating, you know, bitch and moan as you do, you know, uh, bloody this and bloody that. Wine, wine, wine. And this woman stopped us and um, she said, oh, thank you so much for being here. And I said, oh, no, thank you for, and this was all in Top Piston as well. And I said, no, thank you for having us. You, you're very welcoming. Thank you. And she said, no, you don't understand. My daughter and I can now walk down the street and not fear rape. Thank you for being here. Which point that shut us up, you know, on our bleating and certainly made us sort of stop and think and just makes you realise once again, all of them made me realise how lucky we are here. Yes, there's, I'm not saying rape doesn't exist in Australia, but it's just a totally different environment. And so, yeah, that was really touching and certainly really quite distressing in some ways, but also really rewarding because her and her daughter can walk down the street. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we were there for, we were to, to try and provide assistance security situation and assist in um, law and order and bringing back stability. So, yeah, that was a brilliant thing to, sad thing to hear, but a brilliant thing to hear. Now, on your return from the Solomon Islands, you then made quite a significant decision to become a doctor. So tell us how that came about and why it was that you decided to move on from being a soldier to being an officer. I decided I wanted to be a scientific officer some years ago because that's why I was doing my degree. But when I first got back from East Timor, I was a bit cranky. So I decided I had the insight to know not to do my selection board just then, otherwise it wouldn't go down well. So I waited till I got back from Solomon Islands. When I did that, I knew I wanted to do medicine. And I decided I wanted to do medicine probably when I was in Bougainville. So I'm a long-term planner. There'd been a few instances in Bougainville where one of the the medical officers that we had wasn't necessarily um, 
normally in a clinical type role. So didn't necessarily ask the patient what they wanted, which probably from my idealistic views and comments that I've said in the earlier, you go that probably didn't go down well with me. So I thought, I want to know more than what was in the jar. You know, we had some amazing samples and specimens, but where did it come from? I want to know more about that. So yeah, when I got back from Solomon Islands, I did my selection board for scientific officer because I figured I'd have greater chance of getting picked up for medicine if I was already an officer. So I did scientific officer for a year and then I did a GSO posting as well, which was interesting as well. I sat my GAMSAT, so the graduate, graduate admission medical school assessment test or something like that. Anyway, it's those who have got a degree already. I sat it in Brisbane, so that first year when I was first an officer, and I got a really high mark in the essay, which surprised me because I'd done the preparation course and I did quite well in the humanities. But being a scientist and everything, I got 49% in the science section. How's that? Dumb. But it was poor exam technique. I do remember sitting there, someone, she said 10 minutes to go. I'd been in the army 16 years. So I'm like, I'll just, when she says two minutes to go, I'll just go C, 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 C. Well, she didn't. She said pens down. So 16 years in the army, what do you think I did? I put my pen down. What did everyone else do? C, 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 C. <laughs> you idiot. I said, oh God, I didn't finish. And this girl said, no one finishes. This other girl said, I finished them all. Face the front. So, <laughs> but um, I was fairly stubborn. So I just sat it the next year in Townsville this time. So there weren't 750 of us. There were about 20 of us. And I got a good mark in all three sections. I got 66, 65, 66, which doesn't sound good, but for medical school's admission, that, that was good, especially back then. Then I applied with the army, had another selection board and off I trundled. And then I remember mum was up again from Adelaide, staying with me in Brisbane. And she, she said, there's a letter here from Asa, which of course is where we get our, whether we've got in or not. I said, okay, open it, but you're not allowed to read it first. You have to read it as you go. And by this stage, so I'm a lieutenant in an open office with warrant officers and sergeants. And all they can hear is this like squeal as I'm jumping up and down and everything. So yeah, that's how I got into medicine. What was the training like then being back at medical school and, and, and training to become a doctor? Because I mean, it's, it's arduous. I mean, it, it's hard work. Yeah, it is. It was funny. Initially, I thought, oh, my God, I haven't worked with civilians for so long. What am I going to do? And I realised when I got there, you know, oh, they talk the same, they walk the same. They have a habit of being late and they talk when other people are talking. But other than that, they're normal. <laughs> I wasn't the eldest, so I suppose the biggest thing was, you know, a lot were a lot younger than me. But that doesn't really matter. A lot in the army are a lot younger than me as well by that stage, you know. So made some really good friends. It's probably the way you get through med school. It's very hard, obviously. That It's not necessarily that the, the work is hard. It's just that there's so much of it and you cram so much into such a short time frame. Yeah, it, it's very, um, a lot of it's very full on. But uh, I did well at the, in Flinders Uni, they put you in the wards within the first month, you know, first few weeks. I know this shocks you, but I didn't have a trouble talking to anybody. I would um, just walk in, you know, say to the nurse. And the other thing is having been allied health and working with nurses my entire adult career, I was very respectful and say, oh, you know, yes, I'm Kerry. I'm one of the students. I was running. if you'd have a patient I'd be able to talk to, please. Yeah, off I'd go, you know, hi, my name's Kerry. I'm a med student. How are you doing? <laughs> just got to ask a couple of questions if that's okay. And most people, to be honest with you, most people just, especially if they've been there a while, like the idea of talking to someone. So I did quite well at that. I remember one of the students saying, you do so well talking to the patients. How do you do that? And I just said I'd talk to them how I'd expect someone to talk to my mum. That side of it was easy. And the, I suppose learning all the clinical skills, it was full on, but it was logical to me because I'm definitely a tactile and I definitely fit into the Army's concept of watch one, do one, teach one. So I did well at that. But some of the theory, I'm thinking, oh, good God, another receptor name, really? I'm not going to remember my name by the end of this. <laughs> now, as a doctor, you've excelled in the Australian Army. I mean, today you're a major. You've been serving as a doctor for some years now. Looking back on that, what's different about being a doctor in comparison with being a pathologist? 
the difference I make is is different, I suppose. So, um, I mean, my focus is still the patient. Anyone who knows me knows that don't mess with my medics, don't mess with my patients. If you mess with those, I will fight back. I find I have a greater teaching role now with my medics and, and I love that. They can ring me from wherever they are, anytime. I don't care. You know, I'm not going to laugh at them and say, how could you think that? I'm going to use any opportunity to, to help teach and guide them because they're the ones out there, not me. They're on the, with the infantry or whoever doing the hard jars. They need my support, not my ire. So yeah, I love that side of it. And I, make, I know I make a difference there. And certainly with some of the things that some of the medics have told me, I feel I have made a difference. I've, you know, some have told me the, the way I built their confidence and that sort of feedback is amazing for me because I, I didn't realise I had that much of an impact, but clearly I did with some of them. And then the other thing is my patients, I suppose because I know the system as well and the, the medical classification system, I know how to get the best outcome if, we're, if they do want to discharge. And so I can facilitate that being a medical discharge if need be, but also I can also work out the best way to make it if they want to stay. And the biggest thing I see with my patients as well, I'll ask if they're injured and the infantry or armoured or artillery, those, those really hard sort of cause where the, the knees and the ankles and the backs really don't like it after a while. I often say, what's more important to you, your hat badge or this green uniform we wear? If they tell me the hat badge, I said, okay, then let's go through discharge. If they tell me the uniform, then let's go through, see if you can get a core transfer. So it's just, I suppose they're the differences I make. And when we're field, trying to get the best outcome for both the patient and the unit. I mean, I, I'm not one to go, oh yeah, send them back, send them back, send them back. If we can keep them in the field environment, just in a different role, why wouldn't you? You're still getting the best outcome for everyone. So I suppose I do like that balance of occupational medicine as well as the fact I'm extremely passionate about my patients. Do not mess with them. Now, one thing we haven't spoken about is on Anzac Day, you're very well known for always being there in your red dress. You always march with the Bougainville contingent, but notably there's a particular medal on your left side, the Conspicuous Service Medal. So tell us a bit about how that medal came about and what it means for you. My CSM is probably the most important medal. Obviously, it's the most important medal I have. But to me, it means the greatest. It means the greatest because I had a brilliant CSM, so company sergeant major, <laughs> and a commanding officer. I received that as a corporal. Well, by the time I actually received it, I was a sergeant because I couldn't go to my own investiture because I was deployed. However, I was awarded it and I was put up for it as a corporal, which just doesn't happen. I'm very cognizant of the fact, yes, it was for doing my job, but clearly I did it better than the, someone before me. And also that I had very good commanders who recognized the hard work that I was putting in. The reason I got it was because, so I was in Labrat Barracks Med Center in sole position in pathology on base. When everyone was coming back from team or from the first push with malaria or dengue, I would have to manually screen all those malaria slides, which takes a long time. And I also had to do manual differentials for the full blood counts. I remember one day at about five to four looking at microscope and I had 25 slides lined up and I still had to examine them. I thought, oh, good God, I'm going to be here forever. And I did a lot of things to help streamline pathology services, I suppose, on base because some things I would send out to the hospital. And it's funny in that the narrative, the CSM and CO wrote, oh, she's done a great deal to streamline pathology services to the garrison. I thought, yeah, that's because I wanted to go home before nine o'clock at night. It also encompasses the fact that I deployed to Bougainville for the second time on 36 hours notice. And ironically, my CSM was over there in the woe med position. And he said um, that I fitted in really well straight away. And also I did a lot to, um, I suppose, facilitate the peace process with the in the realm of pathology and also other things where there was International Women's Day. And I don't know, I just, I was being myself, I suppose, which, which is, but I just had people who recognised that it made a difference. So when you're marching on Anzac Day with your CSM, in your trademark red dress, 
What's going through your mind of all the deployments you've had and the military experiences you've had at this stage in your career? What do you think really stands out for you in terms of the long lasting legacy of that for you? Anzac Day for me, I always sort of think of those who went before us. The reason I wear red is because the gentleman who landed at Gallipoli probably would have liked to see a lady dressed as such, so I will oblige. (laughs) So I often think of those and those who have gone before us. I know this Anzac Day, the dawn service, the major who was giving the talk had me in tears because he spoke of a local person from World War I, then he spoke of someone from Adelaide from World War II, and then he mentioned Poppy Pierce. Now, I never knew the man, but I know the picture like everyone else does. And he read this letter from his daughter, you know, his, his young daughter saying how um, she'll never have him march her down the, um, oh, sorry, march, <laughs> walk her down the aisle for, for her wedding. And it just, I was beside myself really quite, it just made it home because I knew, I'd seen the photos of this man, we, I knew how he died and he, he joined this army, the, the army I'm in. So they're the things I think of on Anzac Day. But when I march, I offer, you see these little kids, they thank you, thank you, and, you know, they'll come up and grab your hand. And I suppose it's about respecting those who have gone before us, thanking those who have gone before us, acknowledging the things we've done and ensuring that we pass it on because we've got to. If we don't pass it on, it dies. And we've got to pass on this history because you know, there's no one left from Gallipoli anymore and the World War II guys are slowly diminishing as well. And we should always be acknowledging All the other deployments, you know, Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Somalia, Rwanda, all those. But Bougainville means the most to me because although it's not an active service, I wasn't armed. I made the biggest difference there. In terms then perhaps of how you feel today about the experience of contemporary veterans, what's of greatest concern for you as a doctor, as a serving member and as someone who has essentially dedicated their life to the Australian Defence Force? As a doctor, my concerns are, it still comes down to, you know, if someone is prepared to jump off, run on a two-way range or jump off the wall and put their body on the line, then we really should be ensuring they've got the best healthcare. We should be ensuring that they, when they return, that their mental health is addressed and looked after and not condescended and not looked poorly upon. That their knees and their backs and every other joint, the same as mine, are taken care of and that veterans whether they be 90 or 19 are cared for it's it's imperative I mean there's a whole heap of things on Facebook I suppose and and what have you but but I believe in this one so strongly if we can afford to bend them then we can afford to mend them and it's it's something I'm passionate about and ironically in my civvy practice so I still do one day a week in civvy street I have quite a DVA following now and I've had quite a few follow me from Garrison actually as they've discharged to my civvy practice which in one way I was like oh good gosh I was supposed to be leaving this <laughs> but um no it's something I'm passionate about and I will will always give veterans both in my civilian practices and military all the time of day and by veteran I don't mean someone who's served overseas I mean someone who's signed the same dotted line I did Now you're about to enter a new phase in your life and career. You're transitioning to permanent part-time or you're in the process of doing that. And you're married to Kev, who himself is something of a legend in that he's ex-British Air Force with an Air Force cross on his chest on Anzac Day. So tell us a bit about where you see your life going now into the future, obviously married with Kev and entering this new phase of your career. So exciting. I mean, it, it's daunting as well. I've, I haven't had a move without the army for 28 years, but um, here I am trundling off to um, North Queensland. Kev, yeah, he's obviously a wonderful man. Otherwise, I wouldn't have married him. 
Yeah, we, we've got a great adventure coming up. I'm moving, as I said, moving to Central or North Queensland, depending on how technical you want to be. <laughs> and I've already lined up a practice there, so I'll be doing part-time. But I've realised with my experiences talking to other GPs and those who do recruiting or employment, I've got a lot of other opportunities. So there's certainly some maritime opportunities that would be good and the remunerations is not poor. I do want to get into some retrieval type work, whether that be RFDS or my end goal would be doing general practice and a couple of days of retrieval in the back of the helicopter. So Kev says I can't that he can't get away from me at all. <laughs> Kev's a helicopter pilot. We should add that. Yeah, yeah, he's rotary wings so, and he actually flies the search and rescue. So... <laughs> Which is how he actually got his Air Force Cross was actually with search and rescue. So interestingly, he flew in the same squadron that Prince William did just at a different time. So so that's his background. And yeah, he loves that. So I would love to get involved in that as well. I just need a few other clinical skills first and different experiences rather than just sitting in the, I suppose, the GP office, which isn't boring. People think, oh, yeah, it's all just um, colds and sore holes. I tell you, it's not. When you have a 75-year-old morbidly obese woman just walk in and say she's got central chest pain for the last 12 hours, why are you here with me? should be an ED. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a whole heap of different experiences that come in general practice, which is what I love. You never know what's coming through the door. It could be anything from, oh yeah, I just need a, a medical certificate to DVA forms, which then give me a headache, <laughs> to a mental health issue, to a quite significant emergency. So that's why I love general practice and retrieval would be great as well. So that will be my end goal. But Kev also wants to, um, apparently plane cars are not his thing. So not only does he fly and we both scuba dive, he's got a fascination with sailboats. So he his end goal is to start up a high-end yacht charter business. So he'll go from flying to that and, you know, <laughs> I don't think life will ever be boring for him, So nor me for that matter. So you really are the kind of dynamic couple, aren't you? There's Kev flying the helicopter, there's you saving lives in the back. Is that what you see yourself doing for the rest of your life? Oh, I'd love that, yes. And the other thing I'd love to do is, um, and Kev would love to do this as well, I say, I'll meet him there, I'll fly and meet him there, but go to different places around the world and um, provide medical service. So I'd love to work with MSF or other organisations, you know, charity organisations doing medical. I suppose having deployed a few times now, I do understand. I'm very cognizant of the fact that not everyone lives at the Royal North Shore Hospital on their doorstep or have the RA down the road. So all those facilities, they don't have. So how can I make Classic was in Bougainville. I had one of the doctors ask me, oh, have you got PD packs? You know, so small packs for kids. No. He said, oh, what am I going to do? I said, I don't know. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, what percent of a normal adult is that child? Give that percent of the bag first and we'll go from there. Now as a doctor, I do realise there is a, a formula, but I suppose I'm just very aware and I enjoy that. Think outside the square and apply the basic principle. And I think the more people in medicine who did or med school, the, probably the better we would have been rather than trying to memorise everything and get wrapped around the axles about stuff that doesn't matter so much. So moving forward, you're still going to want to make a difference, aren't you, Carrie? That's what I can see you doing for the rest of your career. Yeah, that's why I went into medicine. It's why I went into the army. It's why I do most things. I do want to make a difference. You can't beat the smile that you get when you've, or the thank you, when someone says thank you and actually means it. Nothing beats that. Dr. Kerry Summerscales, thank you so much for joining us on Life on the Line. Incredible stories, incredible contribution that you've made to your profession as a doctor, as a soldier that cares genuinely for other people. Thank you. This is Sharon Maskeldare for Life on the Line. Sharon's conversation with Kerry is our second last veteran conversation for season two. Make sure you listen to this Friday's bonus episode and then come back next Tuesday for our season finale. If you enjoyed this fascinating conversation with Kerry, then do us a favour. Jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. 
You can also look us up on social media and give us a like or a follow. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. You can also check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. If you'd like to hear more interviews conducted by Sharon Maskeldare, go listen to this season's episodes number 19, Sally Heidenreich, number 24, Ben Flink, number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 1 and 2, and number 37, Scott Calvert. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...